You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. That's where we'll pick up this Lord's Day as we continue our study through Genesis. Uh, As you turn there, let me just uh, say a word again to invite you back tonight to our members meeting and our appetizer fellowship. It's an opportunity for us to gather together, even if you're not a member of the church, but you're interested in seeing what we do at these meetings and how we decide church matters. Uh, That'll be taking place tonight at 6 in our Family Life Center, and we'll be doing that in place of all our other regular activities, and then deacons will be meeting at 7 o'clock afterwards. So if you please make note of that and and plan to be here with us, I think that'll be a great time of fellowship, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. Genesis chapter 6 is where we are this Lord's Day. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 8. If you've been with us, you know we've been walking through Genesis, and last week we looked at Genesis chapter 5 and essentially walked through that genealogy from Adam to Noah, and I mentioned how Oftentimes with texts like Genesis 5, it's easy for us just to kind of skim over it and not really get into the genealogy and, and see what's there. And prayerfully, if you were with us last week, you saw that there's a lot there for us, us to learn from. I think with Genesis 6, 1-8, it's another passage we tend to skim right over because it's a bit confusing. Uh, there's stuff here that we're really not sure of at times, and so we read things about the sons of God and the daughters of man and the Nephilim and aren't real sure what those things are, so we tend just to kind of skim over it as well. But today we're going to look at it and hopefully uh, be edified and encouraged from it and see as we did last week and as we will continue to see as we look through these early chapters of Genesis how in the midst of great depravity and wickedness we see the hope of the gospel. And that is my prayer for you and I, is that we will see that as we look to this text today. So let me read for us uh, Genesis 6, 1 through 8, and then pray for our time in God's Word. This is what God says to us. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children with them. These were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray for our time in God's word this morning. Sovereign God, we come to you in... In Jesus' name, we have sung about grace this morning, and Father, we pray that we would better understand Your grace as we look to Your Word. That we would understand that grace is not something that we are deserving of. That we would understand that that salvation is not something that we have earned. But Lord, that You have been gracious to Your people, both in the Old and New Testament, throughout the Word, and, and we see it as well today, Lord, Your grace in our lives. Help us, Lord to see Your grace in this passage today, to learn from it, to grow from it, to apply it to our lives. We pray for this in Christ's name. Amen. An expression that I have 
heard often from people in the church as well as just from people in my own home is this. How much worse can it get? Perhaps you've had that experience. You're you're watching the evening news and you see a a story on the news and it's something that you just have to turn the channel from. It is so grotesque. It is so wicked and evil. And you turn to the person there and you say, can can it really get any worse than this? Uh, That's a question that I've been asked as a pastor many times. Pastor, can, can it really get any worse? When we think about evil, when we think about wickedness, when we think about depravity, We really don't get a picture of anything worse than what we see in the early pages of Scripture, specifically here in Genesis chapter 6, where the Lord looks and says that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was evil continually, to the point that God has now decided that He will cleanse the earth, He will flood the earth, because things had grown so wicked. And we've seen how how quickly they've gotten here. Uh, if you've been with us, you know that we've, we've seen from Genesis 1, creation and the goodness of creation and the pinnacle of creation and God's creation of man, male and female, and, and Him joining them together and that one flesh union. We've seen how He placed them in the garden and He put boundaries in the garden for protection, for, for provision, how He said you can eat of the fruit of any tree in this garden, but He places one tree aside and says, but not of this one. That this tree is a reminder to you. You need to obey me. It's a reminder to you that you have dominion in this garden, but God has dominion over all things. It's a reminder that you are not God. You are to serve and obey God. We've seen how man and woman, how they were deceived and how they rebelled and the fall took place and how they are expelled from the garden and how quickly sin has run its course. And that very first generation and their boys, Cain and Abel, as Cain killed his brother Abel. And, and then we've seen as we've looked at Genesis 4 and 5 how there's been this uh, distinguishing line. This line of Cain and this line of Seth, who was the replacement for Abel. As we looked at Genesis chapter 4, we saw the, the wickedness of Cain's line and people like Lamech who boasted before God in his own pride that he was a murderer and that, that, that he was greater than God. We looked as well at a different line, at a righteous line last week when we looked at Genesis 5 and and Seth who was born as a replacement, a substitute for Abel and how through his line you have people like Enoch who was a preacher of righteousness who called out to people that God's judgment was coming. You had people like Methuselah who we think of as the, the, the person who lived the longest in Scripture but even more important than that whose name means when he dies, it shall come. And we looked at how his death then was in the same year as the flood. How he too proclaimed, likely like Enoch, a message of God's judgment coming. We looked at figures like Lamech, a different Lamech, in, in Seslon, and how he named his son Noah. Noah meaning relief. Noah meaning, I'm trusting that this one will undo the curse that was given in Genesis 3. And now we come to this point where, where God is going to flood the earth. This, this is a place in the Scripture that most of us are, are familiar with, and yet still there's much that we often don't study. So we're going to be looking at this this week and in the coming weeks. But specifically this week, 
at a passage that bridges us from creation and the fall and this line of righteousness and this line of a curse to Noah and the ark. Before we look at it deeply, I want to just note two comments. Uh, One is, uh, this is a very difficult passage in that there are vast interpretations and when I say that, I don't just mean that you have, well, conservative scholars say this and liberal scholars say this, but among conservative scholars, there's, there's vast, vast interpretations of what's being said here. And so I'll do my best in the time we have just to mention what some of those are, but, but really try to narrow in what I think the text is communicating to us, what God's saying to us through this. Uh, the other thing to note is this, of course, we have chapter and verse to help us in our study of God's Word today, but uh, you probably know that has not always been the case, and so uh, when this was written down, there was not chapter and verse markers, and so uh, sometimes when we see those chapter and verse markers, we think of it as separate thoughts, and, and here it's important that we don't think of this as a separate thought, because if you'll notice in Genesis chapter 5, it begins by saying, this is a book of the generations of Adam. Then when you get to Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, it says these are the generations of Noah. I point that out just to say this. Genesis 6, 1 through 8 really belongs underneath Genesis 5. It's a continual strain of thought. And I think that's important too in how you interpret it. And I'll point out why as we walk through the text. But with those things in mind, let's look at these verses. And as we look at them, as we look at this corruption, at this depravity, let's see what we can learn from this. Uh, The first thing that I put in your notes is this, point one, that depravity leads to distortion. Depravity leads to distortion. What we see in Genesis 6 is a a distortion of what God had called man to and what He had provided for man. That's a distortion we've seen throughout the Scripture up to this point. The first verse there doesn't necessarily tell us the whole story. The first verse tells us, man begins to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to man. Well, this, in and of itself, can just be a a mark of obedience. Uh, God had called His people in Genesis 1, verse 28, to be fruitful, to multiply. And so you have an indication here that that's what's happening. They are being fruitful, they are multiplying. But what you find as you read through the remainder of the text is something is not right. Something is distorted. Something is twisted in the way they're doing that. We've seen this distortion before. I think again of the garden. You have Adam and Eve in the garden. God says, this, this tree, the knowledge of good and evil, this tree, do not eat of it. That's to protect you. God says, the day you eat of it, you will die. So what does He do? He says, this tree will protect you. Do not eat from it. These trees are for your provision. You can eat of any tree here that you want, except for this one. Provision, protection. What do they do? They twist those things. And so they go to this tree, the knowledge of good and evil, for what? For provision. And then you notice when God comes into the garden, what do they do? They try to hide in those other trees for protection. That they twist, they distort what God has put before them. We we do this as well. Oftentimes God has put things before us, uh, for us, for provision for us, for protection from us. But our desires, we, we twist these things, we distort things. Sometimes we do like Eve did, like Adam did in response to the serpent. We, we distort the very words of God based on our desire. This is what our depravity leads us to do. This is what we see happening here because while they were supposed to multiply and they were multiplying, something is wrong with the way they're doing that. And you get that indication as you read on. 
in verses 2 through 4. Then we come to a part that's a little bit complicated. Very diverse in interpretation. Verse 2. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and so they took as their wives any they chose. Now, we could spend a great amount of time talking through the various interpretations. Let me just briefly tell you what different folks would say. Uh, really, the, the main two interpretations of this passage. Uh, the first one is this, that the sons of God uh, are angels, specifically fallen angels, who are entering into relationships with human women. Uh, this was not pleasing to God. This was wicked. And so this is why, in part, God is bringing now the curse, the flood. He's going to cleanse the earth of this. Uh, those who take this perspective would go on to say that verse 4 that talks about the Nephilim, that the Nephilim specifically are the offspring of the fallen angels, the sons of God, and these earthly women. And so God is just going to cleanse the world of this. The, the support for this comes from that word sons of God. When you look at it in the Hebrew, you find that term, for example, in Job. In Job, it is specifically talking of angels. And so there's, there's reason for people to take that perspective of that passage. However, there's also great reason to object to it. Uh, I think the, the, the strongest argument comes from Jesus himself. And Jesus, Jesus in Matthew chapter 22 the Pharisees come to Jesus and they're trying to stump him as they often do and they ask him a question about marriage. They ask him a question about a woman who's been married multiple times and they say, well, in heaven, who's she going to be married to? And Jesus responds to them by saying that in heaven they will be like the angels, Matthew 22, verse 30, and that the angels neither marry or are given in marriage. Well, if this is the case, then there seems to be a problem with that interpretation of Genesis chapter 6, because it doesn't just say that these sons of God and daughters of man are cohabitating, coming together. It says specifically they are married. But that's, that's one perspective and the arguments for and against it. The, the other major perspective would be this, that the sons of God is speaking of the line of Seth, the Sethites, uh, that righteous line, that remnant that we read about in Genesis 5. Uh, that, that if you remember Genesis 5, it doesn't just go back to Adam, it goes back to God. If you think about even in the New Testament sense, believers are referred to, God is our Father. We are sons of God. And so the sense there would be that the Sethites are the sons of God, but in sin, in wickedness, in depravity, they began to intermarry with the daughters of Cain. They're mixing these two lines together. The, the support for that is simply the context. Uh, that's where the Scripture seems to lead us as it's presented this righteous line and this unrighteous line. The support from that as well comes from God is going to flood the earth in response to what? The wickedness of man. It doesn't say here that God's flooding the earth in response to the wickedness of fallen angels. Those who disagree with that, however, will point towards the other argument and again to the argument of sons of God and how that's used. And there's a lot more there to that, but in general, those are the two perspectives. I lean towards the perspective that this is speaking of these two lines, of the sons of Seth and the daughters of Cain. One, for the context. I think the context leans, lends itself towards that. Two, because you look at the overall teaching in the Old Testament, you have this very strong teaching that God's people, the Israelites, were not to intermarry with other peoples, with other uh, groups who would bring in their false gods and their pagan religions, because this is what would happen. Every time that the Israelites would intermarry with one of these other groups of people, it was not their religion, the one true religion that spread, but their religion was corrupted by these pagan beliefs. I think that's what you have happening here. 
is that you had this remnant, this righteous line that we see in Genesis 5 is continuing forward. But now even that is becoming corrupted as they begin to intermarry with these unrighteous, these descendants of Cain to the point where this remnant has now been diluted to the point where there's none left except for the favor that God shows to Noah and his family. Whatever the case, what you find here is wickedness is spread, the truth has been distorted, and God is going to bring judgment. Verse 4, or excuse me, verse 3 also gives us a bit of a challenge in our interpretation because it says that the Lord looks and He says that man's days shall be 120 years. Again, you have different perspectives of this verse. That 120 can refer uh, to the number of days before God will flood the earth. It'll be 120 years before He'll bring the flood. That, that fits in the timeline of what we see here. There's others who suggest that the 120 is a limitation that God will now put on lifespan. We talked last week about what we see as unusually large lifespans, close to a thousand years between creation and the flood. And so here God could be saying, okay, I'm not going to put up with man's wickedness for that great amount of time. I'm going to limit it to 120 years. And actually what you see as you read through the Old Testament is lifespan decreases till it gets to about 120 years. For example, Moses lives 120 years. But there are those who live past that. Uh, we even see in our, in our time today, it doesn't seem that many people live beyond that, yet you know, one may live to 121, 122 years. The Guinness Book of World Records says the oldest person to ever live was about 122 years old. And so 122 is not 120, so there's a problem with that argument. Either way, the result is the same. God is looking at man's wickedness. He's looking at man's depravity, and he is saying, no more. I'm going to put a limit to this. Something has to be done. And judgment is coming. We see as well, point two, that this depravity not only leads to a distortion of God's word and his truth, but it leads to deception. And we see this deception in our lives today. Uh, verse five, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In our depravity, though, we, we are deceived into thinking that sin is just something that we see on the outside. And so th this brings great confusion to the gospel. Now, think about this, for example. Perhaps you have found yourself saying or heard someone say something like, well, you know, so-and-so, I mean, they're really a good person. They're just a good person. Well, why do we tend to refer to a person as a good person? Because we see what's on the outside. And so we measure them by those external things. And so, for example, we might know this, this good person who doesn't really go to church and doesn't speak of God and is not a Christian, but, but man, they seem so good. You may say something like, well, you know, I'd, I'd trust them before I'd trust most of the people I go to church with. And you might be well suited to do that. I mean, that's, they appear so good. Here's the problem. God sees the heart. And in Genesis 6, God does not look down at man and say, look at all their wicked actions. Look at how evil they appear to be. Now there's evil there. There's wickedness there. But what is it that God points out to us in Genesis 6? What is it that, that, that through the Holy Spirit, Moses is wanting us to see here? That sin is a heart issue. It's not just an appearance issue. It's not just an action issue. It's a heart issue. The heart is what is depraved. The heart is what is 
wicked. It doesn't matter if you look good on the outside. The heart is the issue. This is what Jesus brings our attention to time and time again. The outside of the bowl looks good. The inside of the bowl is filthy. Are you going to eat out of that bowl? talks about whitewashed tombs. The, the tombs, they look so clean and, and cleansed and, and so nice. Decrepit, rotten bones are underneath the ground below them. It doesn't matter what the outside looks like, and yet we place a great emphasis on that. But we see here in the Scripture that the issue is the heart. The problem here is this. We don't know our own heart. So parents, perhaps you've had your child say something like this to you. Well, you just don't know how I feel. Your response? Well, you don't know how you feel either. We don't know our heart. We, we deceive ourselves. And children, at least you think I'm just making fun of you. Your parents come in to say the same thing to me when they try to explain their actions. You know, well, Pastor, if you just know how I felt. What's the problem with explaining things in terms of how we feel the problem is we don't know our own heart the problem is our heart is depraved and wicked the problem is our heart leads us to sin and that is why jeremiah says in jeremiah 17 who 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 can understand the heart it it is deceptive It, it is wicked but in verse 10 says it is the lord who knows the heart it is the lord who judges the heart and the reality is we will stand before god not judged on whether or not we were a good person or not but judged on our heart and that is what the gospel offers us a new heart to replace our heart of stone with a heart of flesh we see this in genesis chapter 6 when we see this this deception and when we see this this wickedness this depravity this heart issue what we see as well is that depravity leads to death ultimately it doesn't just distort god's word it doesn't just deceive us it ultimately will destroy us and kill us. Verse 6, the Lord is sorry that He's made man on the earth. And then this expression, it says, it grieved Him to His heart. That's often something we don't think much about. We think about God in terms of man is rebellious and sinful, and so God is going to bring judgment. And yet you have something here in between the two in Genesis 6. God is grieving man's rebellion and man's sin. He's still going to bring judgment, but he is grieving man's sin. We see that same expression used two other times in the Old Testament, and it's used of God in the same way. In Psalm chapter 78, it speaks of Israel's rebellion. It says that they grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. Notice the pattern here. Man rebels, God grieves, judgment. Isaiah 63, but they rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit. Therefore, He turned to be their enemy and Himself fought against them. Again, they were rebellious. It grieved God. And now there is judgment. That is what we see as well in Genesis 6. Man has rebelled to the point that every intention of his heart is wicked. God is grieving His rebellion and God will bring judgment. Here it says in the form, verse 7, of this, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land. The the Hebrew term here, blot out, essentially means he is going to make it as if they were never there. He is going to completely remove them. He is going to blot them out. Why? Because this is what their sin is deserving of. 
Friends, this is the same pattern we see. Not just in Genesis 6, not just in the Scripture as a whole, but we see this pattern in our lives as well. That, that we, like those we've read about, we, we distort God's truth and, and we are deceived into thinking that we're okay. That we're really alright. That we're just not that bad. And little do we know, sin is leading us to death. Not some of the time, not most of the time, but all of the time. The curse to Adam... To death you shall return. You will die, Adam, for your sin. God is now looking at man. He had given Adam a quite a long lifespan even after saying that. But now He's saying, no, no more. What does the Scripture say to us? The wages of sin is death. The only way to life is through the hope that the Gospel offers us. But we are deceived into thinking that somehow we're okay without it. That somehow we know better than God. That somehow we're going to be okay. The Scripture says, no, we will not. Scripture says what we see here, that God looks at His creation. He grieves their sin, and He is going to bring judgment. But in His grace, He offers us hope. And that's the last point that I've put there in your notes this morning. That as depraved people, we need a deliverer. And we see this from verse 8. God has looked at man. He's looked at his wickedness. He says, no more. But then we come to verse 8. And it tells us this. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor. Hebrew word there means grace. Noah finds grace. Probably heard this definition before. What is grace? It is his unmerited favor. This means that that God was not about to bring the floodwaters on the earth and then suddenly notice Noah and said, oh, wait a second. I haven't considered just how good and perfect Noah is. I should save him. That's not what the text indicates. What it indicates is that God, in the midst of wickedness, He looks and for His own reasons, He chooses Noah, He gives Noah favor, and He is going to provide deliverance through Noah. Deliverance for Noah and his direct family that will one day result through his line and the birth of a Messiah who will deliver his people from their sin. Deliverance not just for Noah, deliverance for us today. Why does he do this? Because our God, who grieves the sin of man, is a compassionate God. And our God, in the midst of what we've seen in our study of Genesis, and how quickly we fall into our sin and how wicked we can be, this same God provides a deliverer for you and I. And so what we will see as we continue in this study in the coming weeks is that God will provide this ark. And this ark will cover Noah and his family. And it will cover them from the judgment of God that comes down on everyone else. God's wrath will be poured out in the form of the flood, but you will have this family covered and protected, wrapped in something. What is that a picture of? Again, it's a picture of the Gospel. Because this is what we have in Christ. We are covered in the righteousness of Christ. So that God's wrath is not poured out on us. God's wrath was poured out on Jesus on the cross. We who have repented and believed, who have faith in Christ, have great hope. And so when you turn on the evening news tonight, you don't need to shake your head and look at it and say, how much worse can it get? You and I need to be reminded that apart from the grace of God, that is us. 
that apart from the grace of God, we deserve the judgment. We deserve the wrath that God will pour out on the wicked. We need to be reminded of the gospel that it's not because of us that God saved us, but it's because He brought favor on us and showed us that favor. We need to be reminded when we see the wickedness of our world that that is a cry from the lost, that they too need a deliverer, and that we are ambassadors who can take the good news of the gospel to them. We don't need to shake our heads and think, woe is me, it's so bad. We need to be reminded to look to God's Word and raise our hands and say, He is so great. That in the midst of our wickedness, He still has a remnant. That in the midst of our wickedness, He still provides hope. That He holds back His wrath. That He gives us an opportunity for repentance. But one day, that will be gone. Scripture says He is flooded, but fire will consume us one day. It says that His judgment is coming again. And like those in the days of Noah, who the text tells us in the New Testament, were just going about their daily activities, and judgment came. The New Testament tells us He will come like a thief in the night. And judgment will come again. You're not going to know the day or the hour. You're not going to know the moment. doesn't matter what new spectacle is out there, what new book is out there, what person says they know. The Scripture says they won't. And so today is the opportunity for you to respond in repentance, in faith. Today is the opportunity for you to consider, God, why didn't you wipe them all out? To consider, God, why haven't you wiped me out yet? To remember the hope that the gospel offers us to repent of our sin, to place our faith in Christ. And for those that have, this should be a reminder to us of the great news of the gospel that we can rejoice in greatly and that we can share with others. Let's pray to our end, that end this Lord's Day. If you would, pray with me. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for what we see in Genesis chapter 6 that we see in the midst of great wickedness, that it grieves You. That we see in the midst of that, Lord, that while You are compassionate, while You grieve, there is still consequence for sin and that judgment will come. Lord, I pray that You would help us to apply this Word to our lives to, to see that our depravity is great. That it may not be measured in our actions and how good or bad we seem to be, but it is certainly measured in a wicked heart that trusts in itself and is dead and cold to the things of you, that it must be replaced through a new heart. And that's what the gospel offers us. And so, Lord, I pray for any here this morning who has walked in with a cold heart of stone, God, that you would replace that with a living, beating heart through Christ and through the gospel. And for others, Lord, who have made that decision and repented long ago, perhaps today they needed a reminder, as I need, as we all need daily, of the good news of the gospel of what the gospel has saved us from, that we might go out, rejoice in that, and share that with others. I pray that we would do these things and apply this text. In Christ's name, amen.